Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. It is probably not too much of a stretch to say we are approaching the last days of the obsession that we have had with this public health crisis called COVID-19. So if that's the case, how do we refocus on the issues at hand before all of this started? In a moment, we'll ask our panelists, and later on, he is the CEO of one of the largest lithium producers in the country and in the world. Keith Phillips from Piedmont Lithium joins us. Stay with us, please. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Antoine Seawright from Blueprint Strategy, Dr. J. Michael Bitzer, Chair of the Department of Politics at Catawba College, and special guest, Keith Phillips, President and CEO of Piedmont Lithium. As we now face down a world post-COVID, I think it's probably fair to say, uh, what are the priorities now? We've been so obsessed over the last year plus with the idea of the public health crisis called COVID-19 that now we have to refocus. Joining us is Antoine Seawright, our friend from South Carolina and our friend from North Carolina, also in policy, is Dr. Michael Bitzer. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Antoine, I'm, I wanna start with you, this idea that we've been so obsessed with our public health and all of the things that connect to that, what happens now? Well, well first of all, thank you for having me. Um, always a pleasure to be with you. But, but I'll say this, I've always said about COVID-19, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and our recovery direction will be more important than speed. And I think that's where we are. Make no mistake, just because we're easing out of the COVID phase does not mean the impact of COVID is over. In fact, I would argue that for some communities, particularly the more consequential communities, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has only made the burden worse from economic to housing to healthcare. And also what it did, Chris, it, it really got a chance to shine a bright light on some of the realities that exist in certain communities. We have to make this thing called access to the great American experiment accessible and affordable. What COVID did, it showed us that that is not a, the case and not even reachable for certain communities around certain public policy issues. Michael, what's your take? I would completely agree with everything. I think the, the, the divide has gotten even deeper within society and government has to address some of these issues head on. I think like the virus, like the uh, vaccines that have been developed, this is again going to be another marathon issue. 
and we are not sure where things are going to go. The biggest concern that I have right now is in regards to those who have gotten vaccinated and this past week got some good news. We don't necessarily have to wear masks anymore, but for a significant segment of the population, those who are unvaccinated, whether because of hesitancy or whether because they don't believe in the vaccine, the concern that I have is will that only continue to potentially drag this pandemic out even further? And what does that do to the economy? What does that do to uh, public issues like we have discussed so far? Can we bridge that divide that has developed over this time period? Or will public policy still continue to grapple with a group of Americans that choose not to be vaccinated and continue this uh, onslaught on the American society? Well, it, it, well, if you don't don't mind me saying to both of you, um, I had a different take when I was asking the question, and both of you sound, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you sound almost alarmist that the gap for the at-risk families, I won't call them marginal because that somehow d diminishes something, but the at-risk families, kids, communities, is getting even greater and the risk is higher. Is that right? A absolutely. It's the conversation of the have and the have-nots. And I think uh, Dr. Michael will agree with me, the have-nots struggled even more during the pandemic. And so coming out of the pandemic, recovery will look a lot different than it would with those who can who will fall under the half category. All you have to do is take the issue called healthcare. You look at communities who had access to a medical facility or even access to the virus uh, versus those who did not, that's reality. You look at the digital to divide that exists in our communities. We saw that on firsthand. You look at uh, just access to business capital, what that means. I mean, pick an issue, infrastructure, pick an issue. All those things I think will, will and have gotten worse. And I think having recovered towards those issues, uh, I think will be very, very challenging. It's going to take some real investments and real partnerships and real trust in government working for the people again in order to help try to attempt to level the playing field. And I, and I think one of all of those issues I think are critical and foundational. The thing that I'm really concerned about is education. Mm -hmm. What has happened to a group over the past year that has basically lost the opportunity for education and knowledge in ways we know that works and they have tried their best but are we talking about a potential group of young people that have been so adversely impacted, it could have ramifications in other public policy areas down the road that we just don't know about for potentially, I don't want to sound too alarmist, but this could be a generational dynamic that really has long-term impacts in order for us to regain where we were before this pandemic. So when you when you both talk about this from uh, the gap getting wider, and Michael, back to your point about education, and Antoine certainly weighed into this issue, when we, when we use the term lost educational attainment, you're not talking about the broad body of students in the schools. You're talking about the kids and the families that uh, were at a higher risk that really have a much longer tail on the loss of the educational attainment? Is that, is that what I'm understanding? Yes, I, I think that that has to be something that policymakers 
have to be concerned about, have to be able to address over the long term, and that's going to require investments, whether we you know, are willing to do so or not, I think is going to be the real struggle politically the way that I see it playing out over the next several years. Antoine, let, let me ask you this. Our blueprint for political engagement in recent years has become more and more acute. That's not a surprise to anyone. But how does, how does this issue that we're talking about, whether it's lost educational attainment or just the gap becoming wider for the families and the kids at risk, how does it not become politically weaponized and we can figure out a way to all agree that there is a a greater need than there even was before COVID and become something that everyone sings out of the same page of the hymnal? Well, Chris, I think everything is political. The question is, will people make it partisan? Big difference. And all I would tell you is you pick an issue, all the quality of life issues that we flirted with there today. The reality is we have to get back to a place or even get to a place where we whisper about the things uh, that we disagree about and yell about the places we agree on. And I think we can yell about the fact that education is, is the great equalizer. It is the only way we can effectively compete in an ever-changing global society. We can create all the jobs in the world. We can raise wages. We can address some of the challenges that Washington, D.C. and down in the Carolinas want to address. But if we do not have an educated and a prepared workforce to compete in an ever-changing global society, it really does not matter. And it starts with foundational investments in education. It starts with making sure broadband access is a reality. It starts with making sure we're paying our teachers. It's making sure the kids have the necessary equipment in the schools, but also uh, making sure that our kids uh, really are not focused on one track when it comes to education because all of them learn differently. And I'm a prime example of that. I am, Chris, a second generation high school graduate uh, and only a first generation college graduate. There's so many other Antoine Seawrights out there who are going to face a world a lot different than their parents and grandparents. A uh, quick 30 seconds uh, for both of you. And I want to ask specifics. In, in North Carolina, Michael, one of the big issues in the General Assembly was business liability around COVID. Do you expect that they're going to have some, some salient decision about that? I think so, certainly. And the big question is going to be, where does the governor stand on this and how can the legislature and the governor work together? I think that there is a greater sense between the two branches, even though they're divided politically, to work towards some common issues. That could be potentially one of the big ones. In the State House in South Carolina, Antoine, as, as you well know, I'm not telling you anything, session is over as of just the past couple of days. Uh, hate crimes didn't seem to make it. Um, would you expect that hate crimes can be addressed later on and the General Assembly in South Carolina will do something about that? I think the word later on is subjective versus objective, depend, depending on who's asking the question and who's answering it. Uh, I would find it hard pressed to be addressing a statewide election year next year uh, where you find a legislative session. I do think at some point we will get there. I just pray and hope it does not take another tragedy. Uh, like the Charleston shooting in order for us to get there to have to develop a strategy to address this issue. A recent article in the New York Times called the electric vehicle race actually a gold rush for lithium. Lithium, obviously, part of the lithium ion battery. Joining us now is the CEO of what is being called one of the largest lithium operations in the country, if not the world. And it's called the cradle of the industry. His name is Keith Phillips, and he is CEO at Piedmont Lithium. Keith, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Chris. 
Keith, am I right to assume that? Did, did I read that right, that there is that the deposits for lithium are nowhere more concentrated than they are in the Piedmont region of, of North Carolina? Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't realized until I got involved with this company, but, uh, but essentially all of the world's lithium came from North Carolina from the 1950s to the 1980s. There's a very large mineral belt called the Carolina Tin Spodumene Belt. Spodumene is the mineral that most people are after that contains lithium. Uh, there are other sources. But this is a belt that's about 40 miles long, stretches from Lincolnton in North Carolina down into South Carolina. It's about a mile, mile and a half wide. Produced a lot of lithium again from the 50s through really the 90s. And then the two mines that were operating were depleted and shut down. And there hasn't been any uh, mineral activity in, in, on this belt since. And you know, we hope to correct that. So how do you manage the what, seem, what clearly is exponential growth, not just around lithium, but because of the knock-on phenomenon of what Tesla has done for the electric vehicle and clearly everything lithium related because that's the energy source. How do you manage that kind of growth? You know, it's a challenge for the whole industry. So you think about it, every car company is now all in on lithium. Ford is saying they'll be all electric in Europe by 2030. GM saying they'll be all electric in the world by 2035. Uh, these are really, it's interesting, and, and, and until you own or you know, drive one of these cars frequently, it's hard to appreciate the benefits of them. But I like to say they're smoother, quieter, faster. Uh, I drive a Tesla Model 3, best car I've ever owned. It's a lot of fun to drive. It's also very, very affordable, uh, leaving aside any government subsidies. It it's costs far less to charge plugging in your garage uh, into the grid than it does to pay for gasoline even in normal times. And there's no maintenance, essentially. I've had this car since November 2018. I've never been to a service station. I'm probably overdue, but there are no oil changes. There's not a lot of that stuff to do. So they're superior vehicles. Everybody will eventually figure that out. Everybody will want one. And I, I like to say, I think demand will go vertical. I think by 2025, everybody, including people on the show, uh, if they're in the market for a vehicle at that time, is going to want to get an electric vehicle. They're going to be less expensive to buy, far less expensive to fuel and maintain, and they're going to be better. They're going to be faster. They're going to be, they're going to be better. Uh, it's going to be very, very, very hard uh, for the industry to uh, keep up with that demand. It's frankly going to be impossible for a few different reasons. And it's, and it's not like there's one grand, you know, big company out there that has to manage its growth. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of businesses that have to grow simultaneously. So this whole industry kind of has to grow. You need electric vehicle plants to be built. That's happening. You need battery plants to be built. That's happening. There was one gigafactory in the world three years ago. That was the Tesla and Panasonic factory in Nevada. There are now, I think, 175 under development around the world, some in the U.S., most elsewhere, but, but the U.S. is catching up. Uh, you need cathode capacity to be built. You need cathode to go into the battery, and you need uh, raw materials like lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, other raw materials to be developed at scale that hasn't happened before, particularly in lithium. And lithium is, uh, we think, uh, the most exciting place to be. It's the one irreplaceable element in a battery. Uh, VW calls lithium the irreplaceable element of the electric era. You can make batteries without nickel or manganese or cobalt or iron or whatever. You can't make them without lithium. Every battery needs lithium, every lithium ion battery. And um, uh, we're very happy. Most of the lithium in the world now is processed in China. Uh, we're gonna be doing it in North Carolina and we're very excited about that. We think that's great for, for, for us, for our shareholders, for the community and, and for the country, frankly. Antoine. Well, Keith, thank you for what you're doing, I think, to move us towards that more perfect union that we all dream about and hope to get there. What role will government play uh, in terms of education, in terms of investments, uh, in terms of pushing us towards what my friend John Lewis 
uh, would always say a more cleaner and greener um, piece of real estate called America? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess what I would say is, uh, you know, I haven't been involved in a lot of growth industries like this. This is pretty unique. I mean, we're talking 20 to 30% top line growth in demand for the next two decades. It's really quite staggering. And in any uh, nascent industry, you start with a point where electric cars today, with probably the exception of Tesla, I think Teslas are less, less money to buy than an internal combustion car. But you know, when Ford brings their F-150 out next year, it's gonna cost more to buy the electric one than the internal combustion version. And um, what other countries have done, the US has to some extent, but what China has done, what the EU have done, is, is offer pretty meaningful subsidies to really get over, get to that tipping point, get to the tipping point where enough of these things are being made that they're actually, the economics speak for themselves and they stand on their own two feet. And, and we're in that transitional period. So I think the Biden administration is, is looking at a lot of alternatives uh, in that front. Uh, so for, for instance, today, uh, the US federal subsidy is $7,500 for an electric car as a tax rebate. Uh, so number one, you only get it if you pay taxes. So if you're, a, if you're at a point where you don't have $7,500 of tax liability, you don't get the credit. And, you, um, and it only applies for the first 200,000 cars sold of any manufacturer. So if you're Tesla and you're the industry leader, you've already exhausted that. So Tesla buyers don't get that credit, which I think is sort of silly. Um, but uh, So that's something that's being looked at. Uh, and then also in the EU and in China, they've been stricter with respect to emissions controls. And so you've seen in the EU, so China is the world's biggest vehicle market and China until 2019 was the world's biggest electric car market. Europe surpassed it last year. Uh, and it was in part by the CO2 emissions penalties kicking in and, it was, and, and really compelling these car companies to make cleaner vehicles. And it was in part by some additional subsidies they offered uh, at the, during the early stages of COVID which really drove demand. So in December in the EU, 21% of the cars sold had a battery in them uh, versus three or 4% here in the US. Uh, so policies like that make a difference. And I think, I, I think uh, you know, the industry isn't that far away from being at a point, I'm talking about the electric vehicle industry, not the lithium industry, but the electric vehicle industry, it's not that far uh, away from the point where these cars will be um, you know, less expensive to produce as companies get better at it. And it's really just that and, and produce more at scale. Michael, I'm, I'm curious because you, you talk about the government subsidies, the, the issues at the national level, uh, being in North Carolina, what can state governments do in particular to support this, this burgeoning uh, industry? But also, I guess a kind of follow up is with gas taxes and the, the revenue that's generated from that, are states going to have to look at different models now to replace that potential hole in their budgets coming through? Well, yeah, those are, those are both good questions. So I think on the second question, there's a lot of talk these days about um, how do you address that? If, if, if you're in the world where you have two or three or 4% of the cars are electric, it really doesn't move the needle, but it, uh, most people think we'll be at 10% or more electric vehicle penetration. So 10% more of sales will be electric by 2025. 20, 30, 40% by 2030. I am actually more optimistic than that. You get to a point where uh, if, if we pay for our interstate highway system through gasoline taxes and we're only buying cars that don't have don't use gasoline, then you have, have to find a different way to fund that. Uh, and that's, that's a problem that's kind of above my pay grade, but that's something I think people will be thinking about. That, and the different objectives are, on the one hand, I think most people agree that it's a good idea to incentivize the purchase of electric cars. So uh, 
putting a tax on the user of an electric car for the highways would be a disincentive, but it's, I, I get the logic on both sides. In terms of what states can do, um, you know, it's interesting. So in our business, we're going to be, our plan is to extract, you know, have a, a coring operation essentially to take lithium bearing rock out of the ground and, you know, upgrade it so we concentrate and then further process it into lithium hydroxide. In theory, we could put the hydroxide plant anywhere. Today, all of the world's hard rock lithium mining happens in Australia. All of the concentrate they produce is shifted to China and converted in China. So we could, in theory, produce our mineral concentrate in where the ore body is. You can't do it anywhere else. You have to do it where the ore body is and ship that material somewhere else to be processed. Our strong preference is to do it on site locally as big cost advantages, environmental advantages, it's the right thing to do. Um, as, as, as we, so, so we certainly plan to do that in North Carolina. As we think about growing as a company and looking at third party raw material sources. So another way we can grow, we can, we can have our you know, quarrying operation grow, but we could also buy other people's mineral. Uh, we can buy mineral from Australia, bring it into North Carolina or South Carolina or somewhere else, to be honest. And that's something we're going to be evaluating more and more over the next over the coming months and, and years. And I think you're going to see a, a competition just like you do for Amazon, you know, offices or uh, other opportunities where different states sort of compete to to be the home of, of that next enterprise. You will see over time. Uh, again, right now, all the all the mineral is produced in Australia. It all goes to China to be processed. That'll change. China will be still be probably a leader, if not the leader. But there will be downstream processing in, in Europe. There will be downstream processing in Canada. Uh, there will be more downstream processing in the U.S. Um, and I think it will be, uh, be interesting to see where people choose to locate that capacity given different incentives and taxes and customer bases and everything else. Uh, Keith, as you, as you described this, this gold rush in lithium, we also know that some people have said that, well, this is a national security strategic initiative or this is a, this is a globally competitive strategic initiative and all of those things are true. Uh, for decades, open pit mining had this environmental antithetical relationship. And I know this is not going to be news to you, but how, how do you not... Piedmont Lithium and you, how do you not sidestep the economic and I'm sorry, how do you not sidestep the environmental toll? How do we not uh, kind of push that to the side while we're still trying to be globally competitive and make sure that we do and are and, and that you are doing the right things based on what our current contemporary ethics are around the environment? Now, it's a good question. I think, I think importantly, the U.S. is... I don't know if it's by far, but it's certainly it's certainly at the leading edge of uh, being the most rigorous from a mining approval perspective and a permitting uh, process. Very difficult to get mineral operations permitted in the U.S. Um, and, and I say that I think that's a good thing. And I, I think when I say that, I think that's a, that's a good thing. And it means that anybody who does get permitted, and we've received our permits from the federal government, um, we haven't yet applied for the North Carolina state permit is obviously doing things right, doing things that would be accepted anywhere if they're accepted here. So the standards are quite high. So uh, the other things I, I would say is, as you think about mining, the things people tend to worry about, understandably, are um, you know, impact on the local water supply, et cetera. And you think about how, when, when most people think about mining, and I'd say there's really two kinds. I like to distinguish between mining and quarrying. So anywhere you're building subdivisions, highways, shopping malls, apartment buildings, 
there's going to be a mineral quarry nearby. Otherwise, you can't have a rock. You need you need aggregate to build roads. You need aggregate for the footings of any building. Uh, you know, people like Martin Marietta and Vulcan are very large companies in with big operations in North Carolina, in Charlotte, right around Charlotte. Our mining operation will be a lot like those. You're basically taking rock out of the ground and then you're processing it. You think about mining for, say, gold or copper, and I did a lot of work with companies that or nickel. There's a leaching process where you take a ton of rock out of the ground to get a gram of gold, literally. The only way to get that gram is to use acid to leach it out of the rock. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. So what, what you're doing is you're taking a ton of rock in that case, you're leaching it all with acid. And you're taking that gram of gold out and you're putting it into somebody's wedding ring, that's great. The other, you know, the, the rest of the ton is staying there, but it's been leached with acid. And then they have to do something with it. That's called tailings. So those tailings are typically put in tailings ponds where, uh, which are, you know, environmental, environmentally challenging. Uh, something has to be you know, remediated over decades. We're not going to have that. So we, we don't have any leaching. We're not going to have any tailings ponds. We're basically taking rock, crushing it down into the sand and gravel, physically separating the lithium bearing elements to the extent we can, then putting them in a, chem in a, a, a chemical refinery. The remaining rock is just inert sand, essentially. And it'll be co-disposed with, you know, the, the kind of waste material we generate during the, during the process. What, what, and literally we have 30 seconds left and it goes that quickly when it's, when it's this interesting. Uh, in, in, in 30 seconds, how, how, much of a, how much of a lifespan do you think you have in that Piedmont lithium uh, operation just outside of Charlotte? Well, we put out a study a year ago. We're updating it in a couple of weeks. It showed a 25-year project life. Um, we've since grown our mineral resource by 40%. So that either means we're going to produce more each year and stay at around 25 years or we'll be producing for longer. Uh, it's a very large belt, and we hope to grow our land position over time, and, and okay. I think this, this operation can go for a long time. Uh, Keith, sorry to uh, cut you off. Wish we had more time, but very interesting. Uh, best of luck going forward. I mean, you clearly have a Thanks. tiger by the tail and seem to be chasing it down, but uh, good luck to you. Safe travels. Uh, Antoine. Thanks for the time. Absolutely. Antoine, uh, nice to see you again, and Michael, best Thanks. of luck at commencement up at Catawba College. Uh, until next week, I'm Chris William. I hope your uh, weekend is good. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.